Thank you for listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Your decision in pharmacy has a lasting impact. The daily decisions of people in our industry influence patients, affect families, and change our environment. That's why I want to tell you about AltiGuard Safe Pack, a product from Altimed that makes choosing which pen needle to dispense an easy decision. AltiGuard Safe Pack pen needles are an FDA cleared product that provides 100 premium pen needles in a sharps container, all in one convenient package system. When you dispense the AltiGuard Safe Pack, you protect families and your community from sharps injuries and you remove medical waste from the environment. To learn more, visit altiguardsafepack.com forward slash podcast. That's altiguardsafepack.com forward slash podcast. When you dispense the AltiGuard Safe Pack, you choose positive change. You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Welcome to Let's Pharmanize, a proud member of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. I'm Shane Gerritsen. And I'm Cal Vandegrift. I'm Mickey Ferguson. And I'm Justin Frederick. And today we're going to talk about the history of pacemakers and how that ties into Iron Man. All that and more on Let's Pharmanize. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The views and opinions expressed within are those of the authors and speakers themselves and do not necessarily represent any affiliated institution or third party. Well, Justin, I know that you are a Marvel fan. I am a Marvel fan. Mickey is a Marvel fan, and Calvin has heard of Marvel. <laughs> Calvin saw Winter Soldier at the behest of his ex-girlfriend, that who is, is true. now dead. <laughs> that is not true. <laughs> so, I, I think. I mean, I don't know. It's not like I've talked to her. So, Justin, tell us about Marvel. Why are we here? Besides the fact that Marvel is just an awesome franchise to Agreed. get involved in. Agreed. Debatable. Deba- it's like debatable if you're not into superhero stuff, but I think if you look past all the flashy capes and the action-packed punches that usually attracts people and look towards the actual story for each of these characters, you find a captivating tale that really resonates with people. After all, if you look back in 2018 with Black Panther, it was such a phenomenal film because it brought to life for many, many African-Americans, their first superhero that looked like them. And it was brought together by a cast of producers and actors, all of which were black. It was the first tentpole production. And because it did so well, it gave hope to people. And that's something that I find really admirable and makes me just happy and just unapologetic about being a Marvel fan. So when it comes to having the opportunity to come to this podcast and share segments that are medically relevant, (laughs) it's almost like, yeah, I get to geek out about Marvel, but I get to show you some of the things that you may not be thinking about when you watch a Marvel film and take the time to actually look past all the fiction. So for this segment I have today, as Shane so eloquently puts it, I'll be talking about the history of pacemakers and how that relates to another titular superhero, Iron Man. To kind of get us all started, including our listeners out there, I'm just going to start with a quote. I am Iron Man. What movie is that from? Is that Winter Soldier? <laughs> you wouldn't get it, Calvin, but it's it's something that one of the characters, uh, the Ant-Man, he says that. <laughs> oh, I thought it was the Wasp. I think that might be a Black Sabbath reference. Hmm. I get it. That's over no the heads of a lot it. of our younger listeners, Mickey. I'm sorry. I'm I'm kind of old. Grandpa Mickey. <laughs> Back in my day, we only had Rodney James Dio frontman for Black Sabbath, not this Ozzy Osbourne guy. This went on too long. Like I'm, <laughs> I'm so lost on it. I didn't even know Black Sabbath had a different lead singer. Anyway, they, wait, they had a different lead singer. Yeah. There was a different frontman for Black Sabbath that wasn't Ozzy Osbourne? Yeah, after Ozzy left, they got Ronnie James Dio. Oh, after Ozzy left. Oh, okay. okay, I thought that was like before Ozzy. I was going to yeah. say, who was too crazy that Black Sabbath let go of them? Like, This guy's too nuts. we yeah. got to bring Ozzy in here. He's biting the heads off of gators and stuff. We can't have that. We went way off track. I'm sorry. Justin, 
That was actually quite interesting. Thank you. No, it wasn't. <laughs> nah. But many would recall that trademark phrase, I am Iron Man, said by Robert Downey Jr., who plays the character, as he erased Thanos and his menacing army from existence in Endgame with a snap of his fingers. Oh. The character has seen a skyrocket in fame around the world over the course of the 12 years since the first Iron Man film in 2008 with each film showcasing a more advanced suit for Tony Stark, all powered by the signature arc reactor on his chest. Now, up until the third film, the arc reactor also served a second purpose, not only as a power source for his suit, but also his heart. That doesn't look like a Jericho missile. That's because it's a miniaturized arc reactor. I got a big one powering my factory at home. If you keep the shrapnel out of my heart. But what could it generate? If my math is right, I don't know what it is. Three gigajoules per second. And so many people would consider Tony Stark's arc reactor then as his pacemaker. But that is not technically accurate. Pacemakers regulate heart rhythm by sending electrical impulses to the heart when the heartbeat is too slow or irregular. And this features three components, a pulse generator, one or more leads that would attach to your heart and electrodes that are attached to the leads. So the leads send electrical impulses to the heart and in turn sense the heart's electrical activity, relaying the information back to the pulse generator. So depending on the medical condition, the leads can be attached to the upper chamber of the heart or atrium, the lower chamber or ventricle or both. Now, should a pacemaker unfortunately cease to function, the heart would not automatically stop beating. Rather, the patient may experience something called a cardiac dysrhythmia, which is characterized by the slowing of the heartbeat that will result in confusion, muscle weakness, even loss of consciousness. So every time someone, <laughs> if you look at the Iron Man films and Tony ex experiences some forced trauma to his pacemaker and starts gasping for air, that's kind of a exaggeration and not really a accurate depiction of what a pacemaker actually functions like. Still sounds like a design flaw for him to make a suit like to where it's so noticeable that that's where you have to hit me. It's like a big bullseye in the middle of his chest. Like, please hit me here. And you would be correct, Calvin. And that's what makes Tony a little bit of a intuitive thinker. The power source, as well as his heart, is in the center of his chest. That power source is encased by his suit made of a certain titanium alloy. So you're gonna have to break through that first in order to get to the arc reactor. I think you're just talking about that. It's got like that glowing blue light yeah, that's on exactly it. That's sort of like where drawing the eye. Well, he's still got the armor, even with that light, but I get where you're coming from. Like if it were me and I had that suit and like my weak spot was my heart, I'd put the glowing blue light like on my junk or something. <laughs> like. She's here. Me here, not yeah, here. Not here. That will hurt, but this will kill me. So right. that's what you're saying to, to Thanos. It's true. Yeah. It's like, and it's definitely true. And that's what makes it so interesting when you look at each Iron Man film. He's always tinkering. In Iron Man 3, he had over 52 different versions of the suit. Did I say that right? Did I say Thanos right? Is that is that yes, Thanos? It's actually pronounced T Thanos. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Sorry, continue. It was either Thanos or Thanos, but I didn't know which one. When we look at Tony's <laughs> yeah. device, something also to take into account, even though it's not considered a pacemaker, what it actually is, to simply state it, is a large electromagnet. What it does, in fact, is that it keeps the metal shrapnel that came from the fatal grenade explosion when he was doing a test site demonstration in the Middle East back in 2008 in the film. A grenade explosion from terrorists sent shrapnel into his heart. Right. All right. And so by creating this arc reactor, it serves as an electromagnet that would keep that shrapnel from piercing his heart. So if the pacemaker, quote unquote, his device would cease to function, the shrapnel would then be able to pierce his heart and Tony would no longer be saying, I am Iron Man, more like I am dead. <laughs> That's tragic. So... Justin, I guess one key distinction that we need to make for implantable cardiac devices is the difference between a pacemaker and an implantable defibrillator, which acts as a pacemaker, and it can actually act to shock a dysrhythmia when it's really, really bad. Is there any instance in any of the films where Tony takes 
like really heavy damage and it needs to do like a defibrillator type technique or is it strictly a pacemaker like if it if his heart gets too out of rhythm it just doesn't help so that's a very good question in which case there hasn't been an accurate depiction until actually endgame where in the film ant-man would shrink to a very small size and actually enter into his arc reactor device thumbelina do you copy i've got eyes on the prize it is go time bombs away going inside you and by removing cinematically a certain circuit plug, it would induce cardiac dysrhythmia uh, in Tony. You're you promise me you won't die? Speak. We're only giving me a mild cardiac dysrhythmia. That doesn't sound mild. And the way to defibrillate him was actually Thor literally tapping his hammer that sent a little electric jolt to the arc reactor and kickstarted it back to life. I have no idea if it's gonna work. <laughs> Oh, that worked a treat. You thought I was so crazy. I had no idea if that was going to work. Okay, so it sounds way more like a traditional pacemaker and not necessarily a, uh, an implantable defibrillator. So that's really that, interesting. Thor being the god of thunder. Has I got that. The power of thunder. That's the guy that wants the coffee more and then slams it on the table. I know the meme. You've seen the first Thor movie? No, I saw the meme. Okay. Yeah. Oh, you bring definitely a good point, Mickey. When we think of pacemakers versus implantable defibrillators, there is that clear distinction where a implantable defibrillator would be able to kickstart the heart should it stop, whereas a pacemaker doesn't have that function. It's really a monitor. So it's continuously receiving information from the heart about its pulse. Should it get too high, it wouldn't send a jolt because that would cause it to move faster, but it would monitor it just to see if it would drop any lower. But once the heartbeat or the pulse drops to a certain limit as programmed into the pacemaker, that's when it would send a jolt telling the heart, you need to beat faster. So should the pacemaker stop working, there's nothing to tell the heart that is like, hey, you're beating too slow. Like you're not, there's not enough blood going to where it needs to go. The patient's going to fall unconscious. So there's that clear distinction that needs to be made. So what mechanism of damaging the electromagnet would actually induce the cardiac dysrhythmia? Because as you've explained, it is not technically a pacemaker. It is an electromagnet that's pulling those metal components from his heart. So in Endgame, there's time travel. That's going to sort of switch the timeline of Iron Man's surgery to actually remove the particles from his heart. But when was the Avengers movie? Because that was in 2012, and that was before Iron Man 3 when he had the surgery, right? So yes. he's still, so in that movie, the arc reactor was still serving a physiological function for Iron Man. That physiological function being still to keep the shrapnel from entering his heart. It wasn't, right. specific, strictly speaking, a pacemaker. It was an electromagnet. Exactly. So his heart was still beating in a normal function, but if that pacemaker shut off, now the shrapnel's like, oh, we can get in, sing, and cause the cardiac dysrhythmia. So it seems like we might be debunking that moment in Endgame when Ant-Man induces the cardiac dysrhythmia. It's like, intentionally, it's it's almost like an indirect way of doing it. In, in a way, you're right. It really was kind of a debunking because you see a... Tony still having those convulsions, gasping for air and dropping on the ground. And the producers can write this off as somewhat being like cardiac dysrhythmia because he's not getting enough oxygen to the brain as well as other parts of the body. But it's still, in a way, not really a cardiac dysrhythmia. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, if it was a true, accurate cardiac dysrhythmia, he would maybe feel a little lethargic and may experience some type of muscle weakness, like something's not right. But a lot of people, when the pacemaker fails, they really don't notice that, oh my goodness, my pacemaker stopped. Yeah, until you start getting those symptoms like you described, and then eventually the dysrhythmia gets so bad that you could even experience asystole, where your heart stops. There's still electrical signals going through your heart, but it's not in rhythm, so your heart doesn't beat. That's the big sort of distinction we make between the electrical part of the heart and the muscular part. So if they stop having electrical signals and their heart stops beating, there is nothing we can do for a person. There's absolutely nothing. If they still have electrical signals but no heartbeat, we can fix that. We can shock it. Exactly, and that's exactly what we see in Endgame. It's almost like jump-starting a car, essentially, in which case we can still send electrical impulses to kickstart the heart's heart. Yep. Right, and that's what Thor did. 
And that's exactly what Thor did. He he was able to send the impulse into... He was able to send an electrical impulse into Tony's arc reactor and jumpstart the reactor. Yeah. So when we think about the near sci-fi level of Tony's arc reactor, as Calvin calls it, the glowing blue, blue light on his chest, what are we thinking? More fact or fiction? Oh, good question. I think in terms of inducing that cardiac dysrhythmia, it doesn't seem like the arc reactor itself would have that mechanical function being able, unless you could like make a short circuit in a way that would radiate electricity, which would seem like it would do more damage than good. I, it depends on how close to his heart it is, because your body's actually a really good electrical resistor. It's why if you get struck by lightning, you die. Because if your body was a great conductor, then it would just exit out your feet. No hmm. harm, no foul. But since your body's very resistive to electricity, it kind of bounces around inside you, exit through your feet, and you typically have horrible burns, and sometimes you die. Like an avatar. When did when did Ang get struck by lightning? At the end of He's season gonna, two. I thought you meant literally Azula like sent channel it with the oh, channel. Oh, it was the, the fight stomach. with Azula? Okay, yes, at the end of season two. Yeah, he, I swear to God, I thought y'all meant the James Cameron blue guys. <laughs> what? No, we, I was we trying to figure out when when that hair lady got struck by lightning or something. I could no, no, we don't talk about that. Look, it wasn't a bad movie. It was a horrible movie. It was a, I thought it was a good film. It was cliche, but it was fun. Movie at least. It's a fun movie. Yeah. But that's actually pretty cool. Oh, I'll weigh in my two cents. I think it's a little bit fiction, and I think it's a little bit fiction because uh, we don't have such a device, and that's all I know. So it's fiction. I think it's somewhere in between. I think the way it's presented is probably more fictionalized than is factual, but I think conceptually, I think it it's very much could be something that we can do in the real world. I think the most realistic part about this is the part where the uh, Norse god of thunder shocks his heart back into rhythm. That's the most realistic part about it, because apart from the fact that he's a fictional character, that would feasibly restart a heart, wouldn't it? And you, you would actually be An correct. actual voltage in the heart restarting the rhythm if you're in a dysrhythmia, I think that's pretty plausible. It needs to be very specific. Which, I mean, if you're a god of thunder, I mean, you he's probably a god of thunder, can. So. If he knows intuitively how to do it, sure. But I don't think he'll be like, um, actually, we're at 115.9 volts and 2 amps, and that's the exact necessary current we need to restart the heart. My issue with it is, why is it in the center mass? It's not, if it's supposed to be controlling his heart, why does it have to be somewhere that's not the heart? Your, your heart is slightly left of yeah, your sternum. Yeah, like 10%. In a normal human. Like 10%. In a normal It's center human. mass. No. Fight me. <laughs> I'm sorry. When Okay. This is way off topic, but if you've ever been deer hunting and you you see a deer head on, you never shoot them. Why? Because their heart is not dead center in their chest. It's off to the side and there's way more muscle. I'm sorry, Mickey. Are we deer? <laughs> yes, essentially. Are we deerts or are we peoples? Essentially both, really. The plural of deer is still deer. If you go back far enough, we have deer. a common ancestor. No, it's not ancestor. deerts. <laughs> I could have sworn it was deerts. <laughs> it's still deer. Well, you guys may be surprised I mean, that it's, like it's actually this. more fact oh, than fiction. Did I say that right, fact? Okay, because mm -hmm. it's not like this. it was a little <clears throat> muffled. This is the outer perimeter. Shane's on another thing. Justin, <laughs> keep going. Okay, so I was saying that you guys may actually be surprised that Tony Stark's chest arc reactor slash pacemaker is actually more fact than fiction now mickey is correct that there is some um fictional aspects of it to exaggerate a the character but part of the thing that makes it really fact is actually what is used to make the device ice as shane puts it in one case where he said that thor kind of defibrillates the device to get it kickstarted. That's an actual realistic sense of a rudimentary way to kickstart the heart, which I'll actually go into a little bit deeper when we get into the history of when the first pacemakers were made. But another thing that, it, that I found interesting was that back in, 19, in the 1970s, particularly 1972, a pacemaker that featured a nuclear power source was utilized. 
eyes and it actually worked as an implantable device. However, it was only used until the 1980s because once patients had died, scientists were realizing these people have a lot of radioactive material in their chest as, and that's not a good thing for the environment. Maybe them starting it in the 70s and then them all dying in the 80s probably wasn't the best idea either. I mean, they all died from what you're saying. I mean, my question is, is were they using it as like a power source or how are they using the radioactive material were they using it as like a timing thing because i know quartz crystals you can use as a timing device but there's also like certain radioactive isotopes you can use to time rhythms well the atomic clock is based on cesium based on cesium that's what I'm going to ask Justin is like, what was the purpose of the, the radioactive material? So the reason that they use that they use the radioactive material, specifically I'm talking plutonium-238 isotope, was actually as a power source because once, once you implant it into the device and then implant the device into the patient, you wouldn't have to recharge the device, which was a prominent problem with pacemakers, is the fact that patients always had to come in to, to surgically recharge the device. So by using plutonium, once it was implanted, it would last the entire lifetime of the patient. Wow. So it was started in 1970s, but in 1980s, as people were getting old and were dying for natural causes, they realized that these patients were carrying a radioactive material in their chest. And so that's why they stopped the practice. It's not because it caused people to die. Mm. It's just because of the amount of radioactive toxicity. Well, I'm just yeah. saying, I wouldn't want plutonium in my chest. <laughs> I mean, here's the thing. Radiation damage, unless it's something like extreme, like you were near Chernobyl when it melted down, that takes decades for it to manifest. And if you're already in your 70s, when you get this device implanted, it's not going to make a difference. It's like breathing in asbestos when you're 70. Like, you're not going to get mesothelioma unless you get to 120. I mean, people, people with the advanced aging of the human population, I don't think you can say just because they're in their 70s, ah, whatever, just throw in some plutonium. I mean, I get what you're saying. I do. I mean, it's it's either die in a year because you have arrhythmia or die in 30 years when because or you have plutonium. Die like, whenever because you have a pacemaker. That's what I'm saying. It even seems like it would make more sense. Oh, yeah. And both of you are correct. Even to this day, people who back in the 1970s received a plutonium-based implant, their pacemakers are still working to this day. They're still ticking. They just stopped the practice because they of what you're saying, Cal, as far as the radioactivity, it's like, though it had its benefits of lasting a lifetime, the environmental as well as the radiation, the risk was just too much. Like, we don't want to do this. Even to this day, any patient that has a pacemaker that uses plutonium as a power source, there's an actual center that they are supposed to contact, or at least the family is supposed to contact it, should the patient die, in order to properly dispose of the plutonium. Oh, jeez. Yeah, because if you burn that, they get accidentally cremated, and that gets into the atmosphere, that's going to show up in a lot of different places. If you get cremated with a regular pacemaker, it'll explode in the crematorium. It's a big problem. Not well, yeah, a big but the, problem, but, but the crematorium is like a concrete box. Like, okay. That's another thing, too. Imagine after after you get a, get a nuclear pacemaker installed, imagine then having to tell the family, I'm sorry, we got to cut them open real quick and get this out. I'm the wrong person to ask this. I mean, I really... Like, family members, after they're gone, or myself after I'm gone, I do not have a single care in the world about what happens to the body. This is a whole other debate. Like, we have definitely not. Once your consciousness leaves this plane, you're just a bunch of atoms. Okay, Hmm. we're getting into it. (laughs) I'm just a bunch of atoms and. Keep going, Justin. We don't need that. that, We don't need that debate. We're not going to get into the the philosophical debate. (laughs) And now, a word from our sponsor. So when we think of pacemakers, a question that I'm sure all of you are kind of thinking is, how did we get here? Like, as far as I just literally said, Tony Stark's pacemaker, quote unquote, is actually more fact and fiction because 
back in the 70s, we actually used plutonium as a power source. It's like, I bet one question that's in people's minds is, how did we get here? How were we able to create such devices that may one day actually resemble that of Tony Stark's? And to answer that question, I think we need to kind of jump into the quantum realm and do a little time jumping back to the beginning. Here we go, yeah. (laughs) And just a forewarning, some of these facts you may find quite shocking. <laughs> oh man, that was cute. We've hit Justin. That are you point. sure you don't have a kid? <laughs> yeah, the dad jokes. I know they will abound. So we're now in the 18th century. Not much is known about electrocardiography, and pacemakers do not exist. For that matter, not many people even know how the heart ticks. And so in the year 1775, the Danish physicist Nikolaj Abelgaard conducted the first studies on the effects of electrical energy when applied to the body. How did he do this? Well, he placed electrodes on the side of a hen's head and applied an electric discharge, which caused it to fall dead. Application of electrodes over various parts of the hen's body failed to reanimate the bird until they were placed across the chest. And in this position, they presumably defibrillated the heart, after which the hen staggered to its feet and walked away. Whoa. Jeez, that is so lucky, dude. (laughs) That is so much luck. It's like, uh, let me just shock this hen. Oh, it's dead. Um... I mean, let's keep going. Like, just start what? poking at it. Like, what? What? Imagine their reaction. Like, what could have come across this man to be like, oh, it's dead. I might as well keep shocking it. Like, if, if my first attempt failed, my first instinct would be like, oh, man, this is kind of a dead end. Not to just, like, keep shocking it. Like, what a lucky break. Because what if he would have published it, like, after that hen died and been like, nah, electricity is bad for humans. We wouldn't have any of this. I mean, keep in mind, this is, I know no one's a history buff, but this is 1775, which is just a year before 1776 when we had the American Revolution. So we still had Benjamin Franklin outside on a hill with a kite trying to do research on electricity itself by trying to have his kite electrocuted in a lightning storm. I think that was slightly before 1776, but I I see your point. Yeah. (laughs) I think it was like the 1750s. But anyways, keep going. So... Lusitania times. (laughs) So so fast forward to 1791, where another physician, Luigi Galvani, an Italian physician and natural scientist, he announced that electricity was inherent in organic tissue. He published his experimental findings similar to Albergard by conducting electrical phenomena experiments in frog muscles and frog hearts. And his results provided the foundation for what we know now for modern cardiac electrophysiology. So jumping back into the quantum realm and fast forwarding to the 19th century. At this time, a lot of rudimentary experiments were being conducted to under the to understand the effects of electrical stimulation and on the heart to treat cardiac diseases without any form of standardization. And like I said, though Galvani published that electricity was inherent in organic tissue, we still didn't know how that worked. We didn't have any published writings that would say, oh, this part of an organ would send electricity to this part by doing these things. I have a quick question. Yeah. Do we get the term galvanized from Luigi Galvani? Because Uh, that sounds exceptionally similar. I'm actually not certain of that, but I wouldn't be surprised. Gotta be. That's that's too perfect to not be. I want to believe it. I, I have no proof, but just based on the name, it's perfect. And I mean... Maybe he did other research because, like, galvanization is, like, a technique where you... I think it's, like, a plate electroplating technique where you plate, like, zinc on top of iron or something to make it more rust-resistant. But I want to say that that's, that's where we get it. And if it's not, that's perfect. Stanilos Tranquil Modeste Sorrel is the one who invented it. Excuse me, what did you, what, what did you just call me? <laughs> 
He invented... It was a French guy, but in 1836... Invented galvanization? Yeah. Damn. It was so perfect. Although I don't know if I can trust this source because they used the wrong two. <laughs> they said perhaps being too modest with only one O. That's concerning. Yeah. I don't trust it. What's your source, <laughs> motherbaby.org? <laughs> it says galvanizite.com. But in any case, we didn't have any form of published writings that would tell us how exactly organ tissue conducted electricity. And so at the time in the 19th century, we just had rudimentary experiments that literally told us you can use electricity to treat cardiac diseases. So if someone has some form of dysrhythmia, just shock them was essentially the answer. For example, in 1800 to 1802, a French scientist Marie-Francois and Xavier Picot reported experiments on decapitated humans in whom they were able to make the hearts beat again using electric currents. Where did they get the bodies? I'll let you all guess. They stole them. It wouldn't really be stealing if they were dead, but... (laughs) They dug them up. I think grave robbing is still robbing. It's still robbing, but uh, you guys are all correct. They did a lot of grave robbing, and for those who are history buffs, you may remember that in 1800 to 1802, a very significant event was happening, the French Revolution. Oh, so there was a lot of decapitated bodies lying around. <laughs> literally, it is written that Xavier Picot would literally be in the audience as someone was being decapitated, just so once the guillotine came down, they would grab the body to conduct the experiments. Oh, no. Shoot. That is dark. Imagine if it worked. Imagine if, like, they got shocked and then, like, it just started walking around. I mean, they wouldn't be able to walk around, but they were able to actually get the heart beating. Yeah. I mean, even for that time, that's got to be freaky. Just to get a heartbeat back or to have, like, rigor mortis come back or, like, like, if they were already rigor mortis and they, like, relax their muscles. Well, they wouldn't be rigor mortis immediately after being guillotined. Right. Which is interesting. That would take a few hours to to set in. Would it? uh, yeah. Rigor, yeah, rigor mortis, mortis takes about four to six hours mm-hmm. to start. Wow. I didn't know that. I think I need to watch more true crime shows. And then it fades after a few days? Yeah, something like that. Yeah. 24 to 48 hours. I did say that this time travel would be quite a shocker. <laughs> it's certainly shocking to me. It's wow. electric in this room right now, I swear. <laughs> so let's get to the heart of where we started this journey in terms of history of actual pacemakers. So now that I've given you a basis of electrocardiography and the dark history that basically enlightens it, let's look at the year 1928, where an Australian anesthesiologist, Mark Lidwell, created a device that ran an alternating current via a needle inserted into a patient's ventricle. This device actually saved the life of a child that was born in cardiac arrest. Wow. Wow. Not much else is known about the child, but they were able to recover completely and actually survived. Wow. That is crazy. Gotta thank Nikola Tesla for that one. Well, Tesla came like 70 years after this guy. He just said 1928. In 1928. We're in 1928. Alternating current wasn't even around until oh, that is Tesla true. was doing it in the 1870s, something like that. Yes. Tesla has come and gone. <laughs> and now That's it's Elon Musk. Yeah, Elon Musk. Vomit. <laughs> <laughs> So for so after the miraculous creation of this device, we look at 1932, where American physiologist Albert Hyman was researching the aspects of resuscitating a stopped heart via intracardial therapy, similar to Lidwell. This therapy involved injecting a stimulant drug like epinephrine, but he soon realized that it wasn't the epinephrine that started the heart, but in fact, the needle that started an action current of injury as it punctured the cardiac wall. And Hyman's device was powered by a spring-wound hand-cranked motor, and he himself called it an artificial pacemaker. This is the first time where we actually use the term pacemaker. So Hyman's device generated electrical impulses directly into the patient's right atrium through a bipolar needle electrode. And pacing, also known as recurrent stimulation, could be delivered at rates of 30, 60, or even 120 impulses per minute. It weighed about 7.3 kilograms, which is about 16 pounds, 
and it took about six minutes to actually crank. Wow. <laughs> so it was doing wonders, but there was also some drawbacks. Oh, yeah. But the most interesting aspect of this is that both the social and scientific community heavily objected his work. Or Hyman's device was roundly dismissed as quote-unquote gadgetry that either interfered with natural events at best or at worst they considered it to be the work of the devil this is like the same time when they were building iron lungs for people what is, how is that not gadgetry i think there's some religious iconography around the heartbeat has to be and something like that yeah. um i know even to this day there are people that will refuse resuscitative efforts because they believe that it's interfering with the transition from the mortal realm to the immortal realm. Exactly. And so that was a really controversial aspect that something so amazing as far as an artificial pacemaker would be heavily objectified by the community. It's pretty wild. And so in 1950, just 18 years later, Dr. Bigelow joined, it's like a man named Dr. Wilfred Bigelow and Dr. John Callaghan joined a Canadian engineer named Jack Hops to use pacemaker stimulation to prevent cardiac standstill in induced hypothermia. Now, at the time in the 1950s, to do open heart surgery, what scientists would do would actually induce hypothermia to slow a patient's heartbeat to a point where they can actually perform the surgery. Mm. Now, in the state of hypothermia, the heart is still perfectly functional, but it's immobile due to the lack of cardiac depolarization. Wow. And so Bigelow's team was dumbfounded by the problem of how do we induce cardiac contraction in the midst of hypothermia? And so Hops, an engineer, he, by chance, he just serendipitously observed that by applying an electrical impulse to the heart, it would cause a contraction, and by doing repetitive stimuli or pacing, it would allow this contraction to occur over a prolonged period of time. So a series of experimentation was conducted to refine this process, and from the results, Hops was able to engineer the first modern prototype pacemaker. And the device itself resembled a small table radio, approximately 30 centimeters in length, and it used vacuum tubes to generate impulses powered by a 60 hertz household current. So you just, just plugged into the wall, is that what it is? Exactly, <laughs> exactly, Cal. Just a note, if none of you have ever worked with vacuum tubes, they charge and discharge very slowly and they're very unreliable. So if I was sitting on an operating table with this keeping my heart beating, I would be very afraid. <laughs> and for good to reason too, Mickey. You said you said some like hypothermic, right? That's what we were talking about? Yes. It's really interesting because I just today read a story about a girl in like 1999 who was skiing down a mountain and then fell in a pond that was freezing water. And like it, but she was stuck in the ice pretty much. But she found an air pocket to breathe in but that she couldn't be pulled out for like 80 minutes. She eventually fell unconscious after like 40 minutes. And when they got her to the hospital, her heart wasn't beating and her body temperature was 17 degrees Celsius, which is like the that coldest ever recorded for someone that's been resuscitated. But anyways, they, they like, they shocked her and they got her, they got her heart beating again after they warmed her up. It was just crazy because like, um, there was, there was a quote at the end that was like, um, you're not dead until you're warm and dead or something like that. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And it's because of the reason that I just explained that even in a hypothermic state, your heart is still perfectly functional. It can conduct an electrical current. It's just due to the lack of depolarization, that d lack of heat to generate the action potential. It's just not moving. It's it not took beating. her forever to, to fully recover, though. It took her like six years to get like to where she was fully back to health. Exactly. And that's where the pacemaker came into play here in 1950 is that pacemaker would help in the recovery process. It was never meant at this time. It was never meant for a permanent use. It was only meant for short term use. Those we didn't have the means or at the time they didn't have the means of having a device that could be in there permanently. And we had no medications to try to correct that at this point, right? When did we have amiodarone and stuff like that? And, um, amiodarone would have been a few years later, but we did have... Sotolol? Is that it? We did have stuff Sotolol. like epi... What? Sotolol? Sotolol, yeah. yeah. Sotolol. We did have stuff like epi to try to 
kickstart it, but as far as like maintenance uh, rhythm therapy, I don't think we had very much in 1950. No, we did not. And so that's why these pacemakers were so heavily relied upon. But as Cal also blatantly says it, they can only go as far as the next electrical outlet. So you would be seeing these patients with these bulky boxes filled with vacuum tubes being carted on these wheel carts that could only go to the next main socket outlet so that you can actually use the device. And so that became the next frontier in pacemaker history, in pacemaker development, is creating a device that could last longer and was not confined to plugging into a wall. And so in 1951, the Electrodyne PM65 pacemaker was designed by Boston cardiologist Paul Zoll, and it comprised an electrocardiograph to monitor the cardiac rhythm and an electric pulse generator to pace the heart. His device was based on Hyman's findings as well as the findings of Bigelow's team. The pulse generator was a modification of the electric stim stimulator used in physiology laboratories because at the time, Paul Zoll was, oh, was working for some lab development company that made a, those electric stimulators. And so his device delivered periodic electric impulses at two millisecond pulse widths and 50 to 150 volts. Well, it's alternating pulse amplitude through a pair of three square centimeter of metal electrodes strapped to the patient's chest directly over the heart. Now, though this device was innovative in that it was a modification of Bigelow's pacemaker and that it could send a recurrent and signal to the heart, Another problem was presented from this device, and that was the painful irritation of being shocked with 150 volts. Yep. Voltage hurts. Amperage kills. They probably were using a very low current, but a very high voltage, which, I mean, 150 volts is going to hurt. Yes, there was a lot of skin irritation. You can see patients having some scar tissue from where the leads were located. And so future research had to find a way of minimizing that skin and scar tissue. And so in 1957, Earl E. Bakken, an electrical engineer, TV repairman, and co-founder of Medtronic Incorporated, produced the first battery-operated wearable pacemaker. So no more plugging into the wall, and it will portable enough that the patient could actually wear it on their chest. And this time, um, it featured a transistor circuit. So no more of those vacuum tubes that Mickey was talking about that would be sending a very slow current. Now we actually have a transistor that was very regulated and minimized that scar tissue that, that a lot of times occurred with previous pacemakers. And so the literature proudly appraised this device, saying that it's so small and light, it can be attached and worn by the patient. Created with imagination and originality, the transistorized circuit completely removes the hazards and nuisances associated with AC-powered instruments. Its self-contained miniature power source will operate the instrument for approximately 1,000 hours. And the reason and that it was able to last so long was that now this pacemaker was using a mercury-zinc battery source. <laughs> yes, I, I know so Mickey knows exactly where this goes. We're trading out, like, big problems for admittedly smaller problems, but still really big problems. Lots of two evils, man. I mean... Out of the frying pan. Into the fire. So you're out of the fire, into the frying pan with this one. Yes, essentially you're out of the fryer, but onto the frying pan. Yeah. And it, but still, this device was revolutionary because no other electrical device before 1957 was partly or completely implantable. Even though this wasn't implanted under the skin, you were essentially wearing this small device on your chest that made you look a little bit like a Comic-Con <laughs> on patient. It still was revolutionary. So now we have pacemakers that work and can be worn by the patient. But as clinicians, what's the one major point of concern when dealing with an invasive device that requires frequent maintenance? Staff. Sterility. 
Sterility, you're getting, you're getting closer. What's the one word I'm looking at? Staph infection. Staph infections. That Those was two th- words. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say one word. Did I say one word? Yeah. <laughs> 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 two words. Up. Like one word. No. Staph infections. Staph aureus infection. <laughs> Skin and soft tissue. Abscess. <laughs> Staph aureus abscess. <laughs> but both of you are right. I, Cal, you're actually more... Lord, right. You're yeah, more towards yeah. a solution for that. No, I'm more right. For that. <laughs> <laughs> but but that's absolutely correct. Skin infections was one of the biggest problems with these pacemakers at the time. Now we have something that may work for a very long time and can actually be worn on the patient so they actually can go home with this thing on. But due to the amount of maintenance that would have to be endured, to recharge the battery and replace the leads, there was a lot of site infections associated with this device. Now, at the time, it was concluded that minimization of site infections was possible if you, quote, tunneled the wiring for some distance before bringing it out through the skin. But who wants to deal with all that of having to wire or the leads is under the skin for some form like a snake game. If people ever played that game on the computer (laughs) (laughs) or before you actually pull it out, that's that's just a lot of unnecessary work. How does that reduce the chance of infection? Just moving the hole farther away from the heart or apparently by I I based on what I looked at, at by weaving it. And tunneling it at deeper distance, it would minimize the actual site infection by means of I'm not even sure myself. Yeah, that doesn't make any sense. I can understand how that would reduce the possibility of migration of the bacteria from a site infection to the heart itself by increasing that distance. Exactly. But you're still having a hole in the skin in the same area that's going to be cultured by the same or at least similar bacteria. It, it could be one of those situations where it was like an observational thing, like, hey, when we ran the wire longer, they had less infections. Maybe, yeah. But, um, I don't, I'm not even sure if we're talking about specifically skin and soft tissue infections or we were talking about skin infections that, was, that resulted in endocarditis or anything else, infections of the heart. Yeah, it was more of site infection, so skin and soft tissue um, as being the mainstay. Okay. But as, to answer your question, and Shane, I even don't know myself. I think it is, as Mickey said, it was more of an observational thing that's like, hey, by moving and the wiring a little bit, we kind of minimize, not completely obliterate, but minimize the risk of an infection or severity. I don't know. Seems fake. Maybe it's not a case of um, correlation equaling causation. Maybe the changing of the location also changed some other factor like accessibility or something. I don't know. I really, I don't know. I can't think of anything else. I Yeah, I tried to look, look at the literature myself and still couldn't find a direct answer. Or right. Maybe if they, if they go like higher on the chest, that's cleaner maybe instead of going from straight shot from the heart out to the chest you have to get through the pleural cavity if you snaked it somewhere else you don't have to get through that mucous membrane which would be prone to infection because pneumonia is super common and it can manifest as a skin and soft tissue infection alongside pneumonia it's a really weird situation and i'm glad that we have better options now yes and even then and like I said, even with that conclusion, it still wasn't enough. And so in October 8th of 1958 in Sweden, and a two, it's like a surgeon, I forgive me if I am butchering this name, but surgeon Ake Senning and physician inventor Rune Elmqvist created the first fully implantable pacemaker. And this, guys, is a really powerful and just miraculous story. Because how the story goes is that they created this pacemaker for a 43-year-old patient named Arnie Larson. Larson was suffering from a condition called Stokes-Adams syndrome for the past six months. And Stokes-Adams syndrome is a disease in which a patient was suddenly collapsed unconscious with no convulsions due to a sudden interruption or even absence in their pulse. It's a really severe cardiac dysrhythmia. 
So that's literally like me talking right now and without warning, collapsing on the floor. You're going to need some Entresto real quick. <laughs> or And so with this syndrome, Larson was said to be experiencing this 20 to 30 times a day. Jeez. His medical prognosis, needless to say, was not good at all. And his treatment was maximized. This one is a real cardiac cocktail. He was maximized on ephedrine, <laughs> pentamol, which is a barbiturate, mm-hmm. atropine, isoprenaline, caffeine, digoxin, and even whiskey. Whoa. Whoa. Okay. That is a party. Well, <laughs> he's Swedish, so he's probably drinking plenty already. But hey. That's absolutely insane to anyone who knows modern heart like arrhythmia regimens that is insane just the number and type of drugs he was on is crazy like they went through the entire gambit here the entire gauntlet trying to help this patient with no luck what what was the point of the whiskey was it for like hypotension or Perhaps. It might have been for pain, even. That was that was my thought after looking at the literature, is that the whiskey was just as a form of pain as far as a... Um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's a... Uh, it's an analgesic. Analgesic, there we go. As far as analgesic, since he's on all these different stimulant and sedative drugs. Well, not just that, but your heart stopping and starting all the time has got to be painful, because your heart's not designed to do that. It's just designed to keep going. And so, as the story goes, Larson's wife actually hounded the doctors because she read in the literature that at the time cardiac pacing technology was kind of on the rave and she found that these two doctors were researching or at the forefront of research in sweden so she hunted these doctors down and hounded them demanding that they implant a pacemaker into her husband even though there was no human trials at the time conducted for this to be successful or not and they told her this but they, but her response was literally, and I quote, "Then make one." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> gotta love the commitment, though. I, you need to find a, a partner that'll do that for you. Literally, yeah. how sticks the around when you die every thirty seconds? <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, I didn't even think about that part. But God, be like, oh. <sighs> Arnie's on the floor again. You know when they say, uh, till death do us part, I think that was a pretty good loophole she could have gotten out of if she really wanted to. Nah. <laughs> that, that's the definition of ride or die right there. By all accounts, it was actually a miracle that this procedure worked, considering that there was no prior test clinical trials to support whether this would actually work. And so oh, he was able to have the device completely implanted under the skin, but the device only lasted about eight hours due to the amount of damage to the electrode leads implanting it under the skin. Mm -hmm. And so a second implant had to be made into the patient the next day, and the recharging process had to occur every week. We didn't have a power source that could last long enough, especially for a device that's implanted in on the thoracic wall of the patient. So Larson had to come back every week to have it recharged. But here's the miracle. He actually lived to be 86 in wow. 2001. He actually wow. lived longer than both Senning and Elmquist. Ooh, that's incredible. So it was truly just a miraculous story that even blew my mind. That the first fully implantable device was actually not only successful, the patient lived longer than the scientists who discovered it, and there was no prior studies. Like, this is as close to a shot in the dark as it gets in medical intervention. That's pretty incredible. Legitimately speechless. Yeah, me too. And so, like I said before, the device still utilized a mercury-zinc battery, which became the main source for many modern pacemakers up until the 70s, in which lithium was chosen as a power source due to its longer energy lifespan. To this day, many pacemakers now utilize lithium as a power source, and actually, as far back as the 90s, feature a microprocessor, allowing the pacemaker to upload data telephonically to a central server via the internet. (laughs) Such a 90s phrase. I know. I love it. Utilizing the internet. (laughs) 
thought you guys might get a kick out of that. And so also, instead of the silicon rubber and epoxy resin that typically encased the circuitry, modern units now used a titanium casing, which minimized the infections that were associated with the prior models of pacemakers. It's probably not good to have silicon in your body for very long either. Exactly. It's fairly inert. It's fairly inert and it's not as toxic as the mercury zinc batteries that were powering it. Yeah, the, the only issue you run into with silicon is that it's very porous and bacteria really like to stick to I them. guess... Silica and silicon are two different things, I'm imagining. Well, like silica have, gel? They both have silicon. And I actually don't know. I'm not going to... I don't I'm not going to front on this yeah. one. I don't know the difference between silica and silicon, except silicon is elemental. It's silica you're not supposed to eat, which I <laughs> always <silica>. disregard. <laughs> but Mickey is absolutely right. The big problem with the silicon casing was that not just bacteria, but body fluid would actually penetrate through the membrane and actually mess with the circuits. So by using a titanium casing, it would render that not possible. I have no words because that whole roller coaster was just like, oh, we got it. We figured it out. And then we didn't have a good way to implement it. And then just this one woman was just like, you better save my husband. <laughs> and then they did it. And oh, it's such a roller coaster of a story, really. And that's it's like, and that's just one milestone in future milestones that are to come when we think about pacemaker technology. Now the forefront is not even and keeping the heart beating or correcting dysrhythmias, but now we're moving the future technology is looking into expanding the scope into regulating liver function or other organ functions such as diaphragm control. Mm. And as, as always, another issue that will continuously be a forefront of research is better power sources. Lithium is very good as far as its lifespan, so you're not going in every single week to get a surgery done to recharge the battery, but still patients have to come in every couple of years to get surgery. So power source is one of the future forefronts of research, as well as expanding what the pacemaker can do. I think that's excellent. I think that's really informative. And I think it's interesting to see where we could go from the from here and see what kind of power sources we could access in the future. I think nuclear is a good idea. We could go back to that. Yeah, and nuclear is wasn't essentially like a, the worst idea that they could have come up with. I mean, as far as it being a power source, that's extremely like that's extremely like profound. Like you once if done correctly, yeah, it can last one even two lifetimes yeah it's just being able to minimize the radiation and being able to contain it which is kind of what tony was able to oh, somehow with his genius be able to do to contain that radioactivity from his arc reactor so that he doesn't experience so much of the toxicity but even then did they ever say what element was like in that nuclear reactor of tony's it was actually a form of nuclear element Just it was not known or it wasn't specifically stated in the films I would imagine it's something with a pretty long half-life because well, everything with short half-lives like cesium or strontium are... Well, that's the thing, though. That's what I was trying to figure out because if he was trying to get something that needs to predict his pacemaker like at a consistent amount, I, why wouldn't you choose cesium? The literal definition of a second is based on the uh, atomical revolutions of cesium. Well... The problem is cesium has a way shorter half-life than a lot of other radioactive materials. Second, it's also ultra-reactive with water. Like pure cesium, if you mix it with water, it explodes. Like that sounds kind of violently. It's kind of dope. Like a gram of cesium in a cup of water just... Maybe it was in one of the first models. It's like a hand man. grenade. Maybe that was the first one, the big the big gray one. Yeah, the first one he made. I mean, we can get over the radiation I watched the first poisoning. 20 minutes of Iron Man, like, so I know, I know just that it's much. Vibranium. Oh, it's it a, was it palladium, but then it was vibranium, which is fictional. Well, yes. I, uh, yeah. I mean, I, I think as soon as we got vibranium fleshed out, they sort of made that like the catch-all, like super metal that yeah. does everything. Essentially. And even still, the even though he was able to create an arc reactor that could contain the radiation, if we look back to the 2008 film, because he was in a cave working with basically scraps, that radiation, he was not able to escape. So in the film, you actually see him operating on himself where he implements a newer, more modified device that would contain that radiation, if fans would recall. That's when Pepper literally had to stick her hand inside his chest to disconnect the old model. 
so that he could reconnect the new model. Is it safe? Yeah, it should be fine. It's like operation. You just don't let it touch the socket wall. Where it goes beep. What do you mean operation? It's just a game. Never mind. Just gently lift okay. the wire. The cover wire. You okay. got it? I got it. Okay, you got it. Now don't let it touch. Eyes, eyes, when you're coming out. That's what sorry, I was sorry, trying to say before. Okay, now make sure that when you pull it out, you don't pull out the, there's a magnet at the end of it. That was it. You just pulled out. Okay. Oh, God. I was okay. not expecting it. Don't what put do it do? back in. What don't do put it back in. What's wrong? Oh, nothing. I'm just going into cardiac arrest because you what? yanked it. I thought out you said this was safe. Out lure. We gotta hurry. Take this, take this. Okay. We gotta switch it out really quick. Okay. okay. Tony. What? It's gonna be okay. Is okay. It? It's gonna be okay. I I Let's am gonna make this okay. Hope. Should have just called strange, really. I'm sure you could have done a better job. That's a Doctor Strange reference. Is he the one that like slows down time? He's the one that was a doctor but got in like a horrible car accident and wrecked his hands and Benedict Cumberbatch. Yeah. That's the one that does like the weird orange things with circles. Yeah. yeah. Learned to overcome his I saw a trailer. His horrible deformity with monk rep? training. That was awesome. Thank you, as always, Justin, for coming on the show. Coming on uh, Marvelous, <laughs> as you like to call it. <laughs> Thank you for allowing me to be able to geek out and also take the time to kind of show you guys the world of the realism that's actually underlying all the fictional fun for the family. Let's marvelize. We out. We love the blend of fiction and fun. Thanks for listening. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter to keep up with our episodes and content. And special thanks to Kelly Kerr for making our music.